Hello and welcome to another Imagining Freedom podcast, which is focused on our rights and freedoms. I had to queue just to get out of Morrison's the other day. The main entrance was blocked off, so you had to go in one way and out another. There was a man making a fuss about something with the security guard at the exit, which caused a line of people waiting to get out of the store. It's another reminder of Eastern Europe in the Soviet era. Shopping was not a fun experience at that time. If there's anything I hate, it's being herded like a sheep. I might be happy to put up with it on a temporary basis in a real emergency situation, but COVID-19 is not a real emergency. Maybe there was a time a few months ago when no one really knew what the, the disease was going to do and social distancing measures and extra hygiene precautions seemed sensible. Though locking down healthy people against their will never made sense to me, and I've explained why in earlier episodes. These herding measures at this stage are just a sign to me that excessive government control always backfires. The hysteria over the Black Lives Matter protests have been providing a diversion from the shocking measures that the governments all over the world have taken to control people recently. There certainly have been good reasons for people to protest over Black Lives Matter. Just yesterday, the BBC was reporting that a black trainee vicar had been rejected for a job in a church in Durham in an email that said, The demographic of the parish is monochrome white working class where you might feel uncomfortable. These days, it's passive aggressive messages like this one saying that it's really for your own good that replace the no blacks allowed attitudes of the 1960s. So there are reasons to protest, certainly. But I think some of the protests have been hijacked by a much wider agenda. One minute people were protesting about the unjust killing of a man over a suspected fake $20 note, and the next people are arguing about decades-old satirical comedy shows. I'm a black person, and I enjoyed some of those old comedy shows without needing to have the jokes explained to me. There's a big difference between ridiculing black people just on the basis of racial characteristics alone, which is racist, and poking fun at people who happen to be black, which is not racist. And then there's satire, which few people these days seem to understand. When you have to explain the mechanisms of humour, I think that's a sign that we're living in dangerous times. Which people have the worst sense of humour and are least likely to laugh at a joke? Dictators. Hitler, Stalin, Mussolini. I wouldn't tell any of them a joke. I think it would be really cringeable and patronising if black people were considered so special that people of other races had to tiptoe around us and you couldn't poke fun at a famous black person. And that really is the situation we're moving towards now. I remember these types of racial tinderbox episodes from the past where genuine racial grievances were whipped up in the media to divide and distract people effectively trivialising the original grievance that sparked off the whole storm in the first place. As for the toppling of statues, this is the whitewashing of history. The Edward Colston statue was debatably a special case, but most of these statues are parts of our history, warts and all. If we destroy and in doing so cover up the unpleasant parts of our history, we're actually creating a pretense that everything in Britain's past was rosy and virtuous. I think this statue destruction is a foolish and misguided practice. People have been talking about erecting more statues of significant black people, which is fine, 
But I wonder whether there'll be a statue to Britain's first black MP, John Stewart. He was elected in 1832 and he was a supporter of slavery. People are complex. I think Black Lives Matter was founded with worthy motives. But usually when a movement becomes really successful, it's not long before other, often more powerful influences start trying to use it to promote their own agendas. The Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone in Seattle, where protesters have taken over a section of the city to create a neighbourhood without police, has drawn a lot of attention in the press recently. The city authorities seem to have given a nod to the area being used by the protesters. And beyond that, it's really difficult for me in the UK to work out what's really going on there because the reports are totally different according to the political biases of whoever reports on the situation. There's an article from Slate that portrays the autonomous zone as a well-organised picnic in the park, although most of the reports focus on the conflict and squabbling within the group. There's a video that ridicules the movement's organisation, though it's based on a Reddit document that appears to be a spoof. So I've no idea what's going on there really. But from what I've seen online from the work of citizens journalists like Dan Dix, the whole BLM movement as it's happening now seems to be strongly reminiscent of the Occupy movement from 2011 to 2012. I was really interested in Occupy at the time. But I was running a small cafe back then and working 12-hour days, so there was no way that I was going to physically join the protest pitching my tent in the centre of town. But I did take a strong interest in the movement, mainly because I was so concerned about the recession, which had followed the financial crash of 2008. At the time, although I was already questioning many world events, I hadn't woken up to the real reasons for the austerity measures that had followed the financial crash. I genuinely wanted to join discussion groups to help find a way through the crisis. I thought, especially as a business owner, that if people put their minds together, we could all help sort things out. I realise now how naive that was. I went on to LinkedIn at the time, and I was soon invited to join a discussion group called Occupy Everywhere. It was left-wing and progressive in tone. The discussions were really stimulating, and I actually learned a lot. I learned about peaceful anarchism and alternative currencies, and that's where I first heard about Bitcoin. Looking back at Occupy, there seem to be distinct similarities with Black Lives Matter. From the kind of citizen council-like way that some of the protests are being organised to the sort of pseudo-anarchistic nature of the Seattle Autonomous Zone and the reports of abuse and misappropriation of power there. Mark Windows of Windows on the World visited the Occupy London camp back in 2012. And he did some great videos about it, showing how these citizen councils could be hijacked for different agendas. I'll put the link to one of these videos in the show notes. There's been talk of Black Lives Matter running a political candidate in the forthcoming US election, with Joe Biden an unlikely contender for the Democrats. A prominent BLM candidate could certainly split the left-wing vote and ensure a return for Donald Trump. If a charismatic BLM candidate won the election, I would be very wary about who was pulling their strings, as all the US presidents these days seem to be puppets, in the same way as all the UK prime ministers are. In any case, I think this whole BLM protest movement has become a diversion from the real issue, that of our civil rights being trampled on, everyone's civil rights, regardless of race. As long as the coronavirus bill remains on the statute books, this is a huge concern. Imposing the wearing of face masks is another aspect of this. 
I visited Iran in 1995 and everyone I knew at the time was horrified that I had to wear a hijab when I visited the Iranian embassy to get my visa. In fact, I remember getting some dirty looks when I wore it to the Iran embassy in London. And of course, I had to wear it in Iran too. I have friends who wear the hijab and I completely support people wearing it by choice. But I've always been strongly opposed to governments telling me what I have to wear. And I'm just astonished that people are going along with this. It's an absolute farce that this has anything to do with protecting people's health. The World Health Organization said for months that face coverings did not protect people from COVID-19. And then they suddenly changed their guideline on this the day before face masks were made mandatory in England on public transport. Dr Anthony Fauci in the States made exactly the same U-turn and he's now claiming that this was due to fears of PPE shortages for health workers. How can these people have any credibility left? It's so obvious that the powers that shouldn't be are making these rules up as they go along. I think science would be turning into a laughing stock if it wasn't for the doctors and scientists who have courageously refused to play along with the financially corrupted establishment sources. In fact, as I was reading that online article about Dr Fauci, a large advert for face masks appeared. If people want to wear face masks, that's fine. If people politely ask me to put one on because they are personally nervous and if they have a spare one for me to wear, I probably will do so because I understand how shockingly terrified many people have become over this disease, mainly due to the mainstream media fear-mongering. I did wear a face mask on one occasion because I was politely asked to do so. But if my government orders me to do so, I will take this as yet another sign that governments are going down the path of authoritarianism, like some of the dictatorships I visited on my world travels, and which at the time made me feel thankful that I lived in a free country. I now know that freedom has to be constantly protected and sometimes fought for. There was some good news on the BBC recently. The news that the UK has started using dexamethasone for seriously ill patients. It's described as a life-saving coronavirus treatment. I really want to believe that this is genuinely good news. But the UK government and governments of other countries have taken so many giant leaps towards authoritarianism recently of the kind that I honestly never thought I would see in Britain or Europe, that I tend to question everything the mainstream media reports now. The thing that seems really good about this new treatment is that it's described as cheap and widely available, so it's unlikely to have a big financial lobbying group behind it. And hopefully it won't cost the taxpayers a lot of money, because we're clearly heading down a very difficult economic path in the near future. So I really hope this news is as good as it looks on the surface. In 2015, I travelled to Costa Rica. Before I went, I visited the nurse at my local health practice and asked her what vaccines I needed. She told me which ones. I think it was typhoid and cholera, maybe, maybe yellow fever. And I happily rolled up my sleeve. It didn't even enter my head to worry about the possible side effects. One reason being that I'd happily had vaccines every time I'd needed them for travel in the past. But the threat of the COVID-19 vaccine being mandatory, or that there might be very strong coercion to have it, has made me re-examine my whole attitude to vaccination. I never considered taking the flu vaccine because I don't consider flu a particular risk to my health, and I generally tend not not to take medical treatments unless I really need them. I've had the flu many times, especially as a child, 
although I can't remember the last time I had it. There's no way I would have a vaccine for COVID-19. And the idea that the government might make it mandatory totally horrifies me. I think this whole experience has made vaccines a major issue for many people who have not traditionally been anti-vaxxers. It's brought the vaccination issue centre stage and it's forced us to contemplate possible negative outcomes. I know three people who have severe autoimmune conditions, which mean that they have to walk with crutches and sometimes use a wheelchair. And I know a couple of other people who have less severe autoimmune conditions. I have no idea whether any of these conditions were caused by vaccines. They just seem to happen out of the blue. But with the vaccine issue being hotly debated just now, these kind of things start to play on my mind. I can't stop other people having vaccines when they're available, and I wouldn't want to. That's their personal choice, just as not having it is mine. When I first thought about doing a podcast late last year, I was going to call it Welcome to the Plantation, because I've been looking more into the history of slavery recently, and I see many parallels with our current situation. That was long before the coronavirus crisis started. All of us are in danger of being treated like slaves. We're being restricted on where we can go and who we can associate with and what we can say. Many of us are not working very hard just now, but if the the forecasted economic turmoil occurs, we may well be treated like slaves in the workplace with no chance of getting another job. Or we may be forced to accept economic handouts dependent on taking regular vaccines. Our political leaders are more like overseers than real leaders, in my opinion. Some slaves live to to great ages, but there are also stories of elderly slaves being left to die in conditions of penury or even euthanised with drugs. I haven't done a lot of research in this area and I don't know how true these stories are, but the coronavirus crisis suggests that our current governments don't consider the lives of the elderly and the sick particularly important. When the coronavirus panic started, elderly people were turfed out of hospital beds and rushed into care homes, with little consideration over whether this would be likely to spread the virus among those most likely to die from it. Voices like Dr David L. Katz, who in the early days of the crisis wrote in the New York Times, recommending that the elderly and the immune-compromised should be given special care and protection while the younger and fitter went about their business and built up immunity, were ignored by the authorities. Medical treatment for people with other serious conditions like cancer and heart disease seems to have just ground to a halt. My neighbour's chemotherapy was halted after the first session several months ago. It will hopefully resume in the next week or two and I hope that he'll make a good recovery. I've been told that there are tens of thousands of people in this situation in the UK. I was the main carer for my mum last year. She died in December after suffering a stroke. She'd been with the same doctor for decades, but last year the surgery moved into a big new fancy building. The car park for the new building was about half the size of the previous surgery's car park, and because it was in a slightly more central location, it's become almost impossible to park there. So it meant that I had to drop Mum off at the surgery while I went to look for a parking space. She was 89 and she walked every day, but she couldn't walk very far. Also, her memory had got really bad since she'd had a head injury and a fall. The first day I took Mum to the new surgery was really stressful. I had to drop her off and then give her really strict instructions to wait in the surgery. 
But after I'd found a a parking space and got back to the surgery, mum was nowhere to be seen. It turned out that the doctor wasn't there. Mum had forgotten my instructions to stay put and had gone out to look for me. Eventually I found her in the tiny car park, the one that never has any parking spaces. I was really angry, not with mum, but with the people who design big fancy new medical buildings whose visitors are most likely to be the old and the sick, without any regard to parking space. I felt so stressed because I'd been really scared when I couldn't find mum. I muttered on about it in the car, and mum, who was an avid Guardian reader, said, it's because they want people to use their cars less. I replied, yes, and I think they want to kill off all the old and the sick too. They just want healthy people who can work hard. Mum sighed and said, I think you're right. When I made that comment about the authorities wanting to kill off the old and the sick, I wasn't really being 100% serious. I was just feeling angry and stressed. I thought realistically that it was really a disregard by architects and planners who tend to live in ivory towers, an unthinking disregard for the people who couldn't just hop on a bike or a bus easily and might not have the money to take taxis everywhere. But having experienced this terrible coronavirus crisis, where all of us have been treated like sheep or experimental rats, with our lives and livelihoods dictated by the whims of the world's biggest financial and corporate interests, who have bought out the World Health Organization, I'm not sure there's anything they wouldn't do. Democracy, human rights and civil liberties have just been casually brushed aside. Black Lives Matter is a valid protest. But at this time in history, civil rights for everyone are being trampled on. Never has there been a more important time to remind our governments that all lives matter. If you've enjoyed listening to my podcast, please subscribe so that you don't miss future episodes. If you'd like to make a comment, download a transcript or view the show notes, go to imaginingfreedom.co.uk. Thanks for listening. I think this statue destruction is a foolish and misguided practice. I think this statue destruction is a foolish and misguided practice. I think this statue destruction is a foolish and misguided practice.